got um, a Bible, it's probably worth opening it up um, in, in, in chapter 4 of Matthew. I'm going to start there. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It's written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you'll not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it's also written, do not put your Lord, the God, do not, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you'll bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. I don't know if you've ever fallen into temptation in some way. I remember once after, after some misdemeanor or other at school, being summoned to the staff room by the teacher with a friend, um, and um, we weren't total strangers to this scenario, so we knew, that we knew what was going to happen. We'd get a brief reprimand, and then we'd be released. Um, but for some reason, on this occasion, our teacher, she, she saw us, and she was like, you two, wait there, and then she disappeared inside the staff room, and so we were just left waiting. And um, the thing was, it was, it was actually a really, it, there was been some heavy snowfall that day. And so as we waited, we could see our friends outside playing in the snow, and we could hear the shrieks of delight that were coming. And so as we waited, a temptation started to brew within us. And um, eventually my friend broke the silence, and he whispered, look, she might have just forgotten about us. And seriously, if, if she doesn't come back, we're going to miss the whole break. And how often does it snow? Let's just leg it. And so we knew it was wrong, but um, it felt so right. So we fled <laughs> towards this forbidden lunchtime of illicit snowball fighting. And of course, the consequences later were severe. We received far more than a quick reprimand. There were detentions. I think our parents might have been called about it. I can't, can't quite remember. But I do remember that in hindsight, you know, it was a bad decision. Had we just waited for a couple more moments, we probably would have been legitimately free. However, and, and this is the thing really, if I was in that place exactly, in the same place, I would do exactly the same thing <laughs> again. And that is human nature, isn't it? Why is that? Why is it that we, that we find it so hard to resist temptation? Why do, we, why do we buy things that we can't really afford? Why do we say things that are hurtful that we don't really mean or believe? Why do we eat things that we decided we were going to stop eating? And, and why do we find ourselves back at um, Ikea on a bank holiday Monday when we were there last year? And we know how bad it is, but we do it, I think, as the meatballs probably for that one. But... I remember when I was early on in my journey of faith, I, um, I was sort of, I was still very much into going out with my mates at the weekend and getting drunk. 
And I found myself in this sort of, um, sort of transitional phase where I knew that wasn't what I really wanted to do, but yet I kept on waking up um, with a hangover. And I remember reading this, um, this passage in the Bible in Romans and thinking, yes, that's it, that's me. In Romans chapter 7, it says, um, verse 14, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And it continues, for I have the desire to do what's good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil that I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. And it struck me, you know, even Paul, this chap who, who wrote, you know, a big chunk of the New Testament, he had these kind of moments too. Maybe not, you know, hangovers, but you get, you get the idea, everyone really finds himself in this situation. And why is that? And the thing that I want to look at this morning is that, according to the Bible, um, the rebellious impulse um, comes from within, what the Bible calls the desires and the urges of our flesh. However, the Bible also explains that the devil plays, plays a part in this, that he tempts us, that he's always urging us to sin. And I appreciate that... Um, if you're here this morning and you're, perhaps you're exploring faith, you're new to all of this, it might be a little bit of a surprise to hear that idea that, that we might believe in, in the devil, that, he might, that we, we might believe he exists. It might, it might seem a little bit strange. But in, in this book, we, we see enough about the devil to, to recognize that he is a, a spiritual and a personal reality. Um, not the sort of the, the red-faced character with the pitchfork. Those kind of images have been borrowed from, from folklore, but there's enough about him in here to understand that he has um, a, a degree of spiritual influence and power, that he has demonic servants who he, who he sends to, to outwork his evil agenda. And I remember, you know, at, at that point of exploring faith, being surprised by that notion. But then it occurred to me, you know, if, if I'm willing to believe in the concept of an all-powerful God, then the idea of the devil is no less supernatural. And also, when you look at the world that we live in, you know, the stuff that we see in the news, it's hard not to conclude that somewhere out there, there must be someone powerful with an evil agenda. The theologian C.S. Lewis, he wrote, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel excessive, feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. I think that's helpful. And so my aim this morning is not to sort of freak anybody out about the devil or demons, rather to build an assurance and a confidence in us that, that, that by exploring what the Bible warns us about the devil, we might be able to face and fight temptation in the immeasurable power and authority of Jesus. And so we're going to look at this story in the Bible and we're going to consider three questions. We're going to ask, how does temptation work? We're going to look at, how did Jesus face temptation? And then we're going to look at the question, why did Jesus face temptation? So, how does it, how does it work? Well, the devil we see in this passage, he tries to attack Jesus' identity and his mission. And, and it really struck me that it, he uses three um, sort of tactics, which I'm going to call DDT. Okay. Um, if, if you did GCSE biology, you might remember that um, DDT is a, it was a notorious 
pesticide that sort of gained popularity in the 50s and 60s. Um, it was cheap, it was easy to produce, it was very effective, and it seemed you know, pretty innocuous. But over the years, um, what was happening was that it seeped into the water, and then it fed its way up through the food chain, from plankton to fish to birds to mammals. And, and by the time we realized, it had caused huge amounts of environmental damage and health concerns. And it strikes me the devil, he kind of works in the same way. He's, he's quiet, he's subversive, he's seemingly innocuous, but his influence spreads quietly from person to person, to families, to cities, through our culture and through the world, like, like DDT. And these things, I've got, I've got a word for each of them. D is for deceit. Jesus talked about the devil and he said, when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He's deceitful, but he's sneaky with it. He's, he lies convincingly because he, he uses half-truths. And we see that here. He said, um, do you remember, he said, he said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from the temple, for it's written, he'll command his angels concerning you, and they'll lift you up in their hands, and so that you'll not fight, strike your foot against a stone. He's asking this um, misleading, loaded question. If you are the son of God, then, then, then prove it and do what the scriptures say about you. And it, kind of, it reminds me of, you know, the way like a little kid would say, mummy, if you really love me, um, buy me this like kilogram bag of Haribo. And as a parent, you're like, oh, I do love you. Um, I'll get you the Haribo. And then you're like, no, hang about. I'm being tricked here. And that's what the devil essentially was trying to do here. The words carried a bit of a ring of truth because he was quoting scripture, but, it, but the question was, was poisoned with a manipulative, deceitful agenda. What he was trying to do was, he was trying to convince Jesus to, 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 to sort of, that he could fulfill his mission, win people to him, just through signs and wonders, and he was trying to get Jesus to, to be deceived, that he didn't have to go to the cross in order to fulfill his mission. And it's this tactic of deceit that he used, you know, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, when he said to Eve, did God really say you must not eat any from any tree in the garden? And it's the same tactic that he uses today. Paul um, warns the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians um, uh, 11, verse 3. He said, I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may have somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So this is how he does it today. Uh, and, and it strikes me how, how often, in my experience, temptation, initially, it so often rears its head initially as a, as a seemingly logical question in my mind. You know, I think, oh, I, I, you know, I, know, I know nobody's really enjoying the fact that I'm sulking, but, but they really deserve it after what they've done to me. Or I think, you know, I know I probably shouldn't have that extra drink now, but after the week I've had, I, I really deserve it. And essentially, I'm still the same like, little boy saying, oh, how often does it snow? I'm going to miss my opportunity if I don't leg it. It strikes me that so often, whenever we, whenever we compromise on our morals, whenever we compromise on our, on our commitment to going all out for Jesus, we usually have a, a rational explanation in our mind, don't we? You know, we think, oh, it's, it's, it's not really gossip. I, I just, it's just helpful to talk it through with somebody. Or this place, this, this place makes me work so hard, it's, it's, it's only fair that I claim a few extra miles on my expenses. I think, oh, if I, if I had a spouse, 
Or if my spouse wasn't so cold to me, I wouldn't, I wouldn't need to turn to, to pornography. You know, whenever we think of, of, of taking a step of generosity, we always have a hundred reasons in our head immediately why, why now is perhaps not the best time to be generous. And, and, and I think it's because sometimes the devil, he just, he just plops these thoughts into our mind. And then we treat them as though they're our own. And we mull them over and we act on them. But it's possible and it's the reality that we get deceived by this. In the film, The Usual Suspects, the character Verbal Kint um, said, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. And I, I think there's perhaps a grain of truth in that. Now, no... And I'm sensing, at this point, some of you are a bit freaked out by this. And you're thinking, is he, is he saying then, effectively, that every time I have a negative thought in my mind, that that's the devil somehow? And um, no, I'm not saying that. And, and to be honest, I can't pretend to understand exactly how this works. Because the truth is, we don't see a huge amount of detail about how the devil works in the Bible. Because the, the Bible rightly spends very little time talking about the devil's limited potency and spends far more time speaking about Jesus' immeasurable authority. But the Bible is clear that, um, that in, in, in Jesus we can resist the devil and he'll leave us alone. Um, we see that um, he, he, he has limited powers um, whilst he seems to have the ability to observe us, he seems to have the ability to whisper thoughts into our mind. There doesn't seem to be any evidence that he has insight into the future. There isn't evidence that he can read our minds. And the Bible does tell us that the devil will ultimately be defeated by Jesus. And so there's, 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 it reassures us in many places that we shouldn't be too anxious about this. But there is enough in the Bible to surmise that, that this type of deceit is a reality and one that we should be mindful of and wary of. That's the first D, deceit. Second D, distraction. Seeing that Jesus was hungry, first the devil tries to distract him by appealing to his physical appetite, his hunger. And then later he moves on to um, power and glory. And he does this distraction technique with us too. Um, when, I'm, when I get hungry, Abby will tell you, um, I, I forget that I'm a Christian basically, if, I, if my blood sugar drops. Hangriness, I think is the word. But, um, but this is a tactic sometimes. Because you know, when, when our lives are focused on God, when we're going for it with God, the devil will use anything to distract us from that. He'll, he'll get us preoccupied and anxious about, about what we're eating. He'll use money, sex, power, prestige, wealth, image, all of these things. But of course, all of the distractions that he offers us are empty promises. You know, the devil in this story, he had no real authority to, to promise Jesus all those kingdoms. They weren't his to give. It was just a bit like a, a mirage in the wilderness. And it's the same with the things that he distracts us with. They're, they're actually empty promises. He thinks if he, can, if he can get us distracted chasing after power and position, then, then, then we won't find the thing that, that we really are longing for, uh, the sense of security in our identity and purpose that only Jesus can bring us. He tries to distract us with this addiction to, to, to money and wealth because it's, it's this distorted mutation of a, of a very natural longing for the treasure and abundance of the kingdom of God. And, he, and he, wants, he doesn't want us to seek that. So the devil uses distraction. And finally, T, D-D-T, stands for timing. When did the, the devil tempt Jesus? 
Well, if you skip back, we see that it was straight after his baptism and before he started his, his ministry, preaching. Having been filled and empowered with the Holy Spirit for this three-year mission here on earth that was, that was going to lead him to the cross, the devil watched the baptism unfold and, and, then he, and, and then he knew that he wanted to oppose it. But he waited until Jesus was isolated before he made his move. In the same way, whenever we make a big step with Jesus, when a person chooses to follow Jesus, the, desperate, he, the devil, he, he hates it. He's desperate to come against it. And he waits for his next opportunity. And you might have noticed this in your own life. It's often after a, after a breakthrough, when we feel like we're in a great place with God, that we fall smack into temptation. Or nearly always, it's, it's, it's a moment when we get isolated, when we're perhaps away on business or home alone, or if we had to spend some time away from the church community, that's when we get tempted, isn't it? And it's, this is not a coincidence, it's a strategy. The devil sees a complacent lone sheep and he makes his move. And he uses all three of these things in combination, deceit, distraction, timing. I remember an example of that. Um, when Abby and I were, were going out, um, we agreed that we wanted to um, save the physical side of our relationship for marriage. Um, and um, some of you might be in that boat right now and it's, it, it can be quite a challenge especially when you're, you know, you're madly in love with this person and your, your wedding is nine months away or whatever. And I remember we had this one absolute rule, let's not um, sleep together before the wedding. But then what we decided, we, we made all these extra rules um, to help us make sure we kept the golden rule. And if you've ever been in a, in a Christian youth group, you'll be familiar with these kind of rules like, you know, don't find yourself in a room where you shut the door in on yourself. If you're cuddling, keep one foot on the floor. It's uh, <laughs> It's quite effective. And, uh, and of course, the classic, um, don't touch one if you haven't got one yourself. And, um, <laughs> and uh, joking aside, uh, we, we, although we stuck to the golden rule, we didn't actually stick to all of those rules. We struggled, and I remember finding myself coming down the front, it was over there at the time because the building was smaller, but you know, during the ministry time, repenting, asking God to, to help us. Because we, we didn't necessarily realize, but we were under a barrage of DDT. There was deceit. I found myself having these you know, rational thoughts, like, you know, I love this woman, and we're, and we're engaged, so we're basically married, so why do we need to wait for a specific day? Or I found myself thinking, you know, all this sexual tension, that's probably the thing that's making us row all the time. So if we, you know, it would probably help. <laughs> and um, distraction. I'll spare you the details on that one, but let's just say I was pretty distracted at the time. And then timing. The, the, the temptation always intensified when we were isolated alone. It often came after a spiritual high, like even after, on, after church on a Sunday night. And it intensified as we got closer to marriage. You know, and that's, a, that's an example. But I don't know if you recognize any of these tactics when you reflect on it in your own life. Deceit. Are there compromises that you have been rationalizing in your mind? Are there things that you've been justifying that, you, that you actually you know aren't right? Or fears and anxieties that, that are really restricting you and you're carrying around, the, but you don't actually really believe them? Are you being deceived in some way? Or are you being distracted? Are there things that are preoccupying you, that are distracting you from the things in life that you really treasure? Or timing, as you reflect, on, on, on the times that you've fallen into temptation, is there a pattern? Are there certain times where you're more vulnerable? 
it's as we sort of reflect on this, I think, that we begin to see how it's working and we become better equipped to face temptation. And let's, let's, let's move on and look at how Jesus faced temptation then. We see that Jesus, he did it with two things. He faced temptation with the Spirit of the Holy Spirit and with the Word of God. We read that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So we know that he faced temptation with the Holy Spirit. And of course, every time the devil challenged him, he countered it with words from the Scripture, from, from the Bible. You know, we can forget sometimes that, that this book is alive and it's so powerful. I remember when I was a teenager, I used to work in McDonald's. Um, and um, I wasn't going to say which one it was, actually, but McDonald's it was. And um, I was living the dream, flexible working hours, £2.88 an hour, and free food. And um, I developed a bit of an issue with the food. I was basically eating it every day. And I knew it wasn't good for me. And some days I would, I would take a packed lunch with me, but then it'd get to lunchtime and I'd just be like, no, nah, actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have the McDonald's anyway. I was powerless to resist. Um, and then around about that time, I read this book that somebody wrote called Fast Food Nation. And it was one of these expose books on the horrors of, of the fast food industry. So I learned about deforestation and about the mistreatment of um, farmers. I learned what mechanically retrieved meat was and how slack the, the sort of hygiene safety rules were at the time. And I put that book down and I didn't eat anything from that chain for six years. I encountered the truth in a book and it broke this somewhat hardened pattern of behavior. And you see, Jesus understood that in a, in a much more profound way, the truth in this book has the power to break temptation. When we, when we read this book, um, the Holy Spirit comes and he, and he stirs these words into life within us. And together, they, they have the power to, to, to change stuff in here, to flick switches in here and break through the DDT. But, you know, going back to that fast food story, the years went by and, and, and my memory of that book that I'd read faded. And um, eventually I found myself, years later, back at the counter um, of McDonald's, you know, thinking rationalizing, thinking, you know, they've probably, they've probably changed now, they've probably cleaned their act up by now, and I, and I fell back into temptation, and I've been there ever since. And, <laughs> but, you know, in the same way, if we read this book, and we just then, you know, put it on the shelf, it will, it will help us to fight temptation for a day or two. But if we, if we don't continue to engage with it, um, the temptation will come back. And so it's vital that we keep on... Um, reading this book, it's vital that we do this all the time. And, and I know we talk about that every week, but it's so important. And, and another thing beyond that, that specifically I'd love to encourage you to consider today, is, is to start memorizing verses of scripture that will help you when you need them. You know, Jesus was, was so effective at fighting the devil off because he carried the scripture in his heart. And um, I remember for years ago, um, Again, when I, was, when I was starting to follow Jesus, I had some contacts with this brilliant um, Christian discipleship organization called the Navigators. And uh, the, in the Navigators, they encourage you to memorize scripture. And um, the first verse that everyone remembers or learns is 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. And um, I can think of so many times 
in my life where that, just that one verse has helped me resist temptation. When I've, you know, I might have felt powerless to resist because I was tempted to do something and then I thought, actually, no, I'm a new creation. That's not who I am. That's the old me. The new has come. And it's been the sort of, the reality check that I needed in that moment. And, and, and I think that when, when we do that, what the devil, he's like, oh, you know, that's blown it. I'll come back tomorrow. And don't get me wrong, I'm still very much a sinner and I still make lots of mistakes, but, but that one verse has, has, has helped me avoid a fair few mistakes too. And so I want to be, I think this is super practical. If you have a particular temptation that you, that you keep on falling into, um, let's say, for example, you keep falling into sexual sin. Try this. Find a scripture that speaks truth into that situation. So say, for example, for that one, Proverbs chapter 5. Go to Proverbs chapter 5. Read that chapter. Ask the Holy Spirit to come and stir it to life inside of you. And then, and then memorize some chunks of it so that you can carry them around in your heart and use them whenever you need to. Now, I know that might, you might start to feel a bit daunted about that. You might think, oh, how am I going to learn all these Bible verses for every single situation that I might face? Um, and and, and it, before you start fearing that, the, what, the thing that I'd add is that, is that this is potent stuff, and, and a little bit goes a long way. You know, um, I think Jesus demonstrated that in this encounter in, in the desert. Um, the verses that he, the three verses that he used um, to face this onslaught, you know, the devil chucked everything that he had at Jesus. And Jesus used three verses from, from this much Bible. That's what he used, this much Bible. It's like, you know that super concentrate squash that you get nowadays, like you don't need much. I mean, you need to read the whole book, obviously, but you know, it's effective, is what I'm saying. And I think that's fascinating, actually, because that section of the Bible, that, that little bit that I was pointing to that Jesus used, um, that passage was actually about Israel's temptation and trials of 40 years in, in the wilderness. So when Jesus um, was facing temptation at 40 days in the wilderness, he, he, he wanted to point to that experience of God's people. And he was, he, was, he, was, he was drawing parallels there to make a point. There were a number of parallels. Um, the 40 days, 40 years. Um, there was a, theme of, a bit of a theme of water. Israel had just, they went into wilderness after just coming through the waters of the Red Sea in the same way Jesus had just passed through the waters of, of baptism. And they were both accompanied dramatically by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus was, was drawing attention to these parallels because I believe that he wanted us to see that, that like God's people, he had faced temptation. And he, de- and he faced it like God's people in his humanity. How did Jesus face temptation? In his humanity. Jesus, the King of Kings, enthroned in heaven, chose to face his great adversary in the frailty of humanity. It's amazing. It reminds me of, uh, in, in 1974, Muhammad Ali faced a much younger George Foreman um, in the Rumble in the Jungle, one of the contests that helped him earn the name The Greatest. At this phase in his career, Ali was probably, he was past his, his physical peak, I think it's fair to say, and he, and he didn't have the same fitness and power that this younger champion had. And the fight started, and Ali spent most of the first seven rounds against the rope with his guard up, and George Foreman was just unloading blow after crunching blow. And Ali looked, he looked beat, if you've ever seen the video, but he had a plan. 
Years later, George Foreman said, I thought he was just one more knockout victim. Until about the seventh round, I hit him hard on the jaw and he held me and he whispered in my ear, is that all you've got, George? And I realized this ain't what I thought it was. <laughs> Having endured the onslaught, Ali sensed finally that, that Foreman was tiring and he made his move and the next round the fight was over. Though Ali may have been physically weaker, he was still the greatest. And though Jesus was seemingly weakened in his humanity and by fasting and in isolation in the wilderness, he, he still emerged the victor because he's the greatest. He faced every punch the devil could throw with just two things, the word of God and the Holy Spirit. Two things that we have access to today. And I believe he did this to encourage those of us that when we feel weak, we too can know that we can face temptation in the frailty of our, our humanity with those two things, just as Jesus did. And so here we, we begin to answer the, the final question for today. Why did Jesus face temptation? And we see there, partly it was to encourage us. But I think this is the thing that I've noticed just recently as I've looked at this passage in a, in a new way, was that there was a real intentionality to this encounter on Jesus' part. It wasn't as though Jesus just sort of got lost in the desert and was like, oh no, I better defend myself, I'm in trouble here. He knew what he was doing. At any point, the Father could have, have, have intervened. At any point, Jesus could have, could have summoned angels to come and protect him. But he waited until the encounter was over because it, this was all part of a plan. It had to happen. He had to face temptation and emerge unblemished. And he made sure that, that when, he got, when he returned, his disciples, he told them this story so that, he, so that it was recorded in this book for us to read. Why did he do that? Well, I believe it's so that the world could know that Jesus was qualified to offer a perfect sacrifice for the sins of the world so that we would know that he had lived a perfect life, that he had resisted every temptation, so that when he died on a cross for us, the one who knew no sin was qualified to face death and conquer it. Jesus faced temptation so that when we fall into temptation, as we know we all do, we can have hope of forgiveness and redemption. Like the, the song says, what can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So, you know, as, as, you, as you probably picked up today, my hope and my prayer and the thing that I really wanted to, to do was encourage us and build us up to help us fight temptation as we move on. But for some of us today, as I've been talking about this, your mind has been racing about, about moments where temptation has overcome you. You might feel, you know, dirty. You might feel like, oh, no, there's things that I've done. You might feel hypocritical even sitting there this morning. And, and, and the reason that I think perhaps some of you feel that way is because, to be honest, that's how I felt when I was writing this. And maybe there is a voice in your head, even now, saying, you know, you're a sinner, reminding you that you're weak, that you're never going to be free from the temptations that torment you. You see, the thing is, the devil can use DDT even in this room, even on a Sunday. But if that's how you feel, let's, let's put what I've been talking about into practice and let's put some truth from the word of God into the mix here. 
the writer of Hebrews says, when the priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Let's just pray for a moment. Jesus, we thank you that through your word, Holy Spirit, we thank you that through your presence we are equipped and empowered to fight temptation. And we speak to the deceit, to the distractions of the devil, and we rebuke you in Jesus' name and authority. Jesus, we pray that you'd help us to be wary of the times where we're most vulnerable so that we could live lives that are more, that are more, that honor you. But Jesus, above all, we thank you that you offered the one-time sacrifice for our sins, that though we fall into temptation, you have made perfect those who forever are being made holy by you. Thank you, Jesus. There, there might be things that, that, that folks want to pray about. So before we do that, why don't we, if you're able, let's just stand. And um, we, we've, we've got plenty of time this morning. There may be things that I've talked about that, 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 that seem significant to you. There might be other aspects too. But let's just spend a moment being quiet and invite the Holy Spirit to come and be with us. Come, Holy Spirit. For some of you, the, um, the deceit is, you know, Jane said at the end of worship, just reminded us that God loves you. And for some of you, it's as simple as that, that the devil's deceiving you that God doesn't love you, and he does. This is how we know what love is. Christ died for us. He loves you.